Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hello, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Dan Yates, the co-founder and former CEO of Opower. Opower is the global leader in cloud-based software for the utility industry. Dan and his co-founder, Alex Lasky, founded the company back in 2007, scaled it over almost a decade, took it public until it was ultimately acquired by Oracle Corporation back in 2016. We talked about a number of things in this episode, including the initial motivation for starting Opower in the first place. We talked about, with the benefit of hindsight, whether Dan would call Opower a success. We know it was a financial success, but whether it was a success in terms of its impact on climate change. We talked about doing business with utilities and enabling the big incumbents to evolve uh, versus the disruption path. We also talked about uh, how that experience has informed how Dan thinks about solutions to climate change going forward. And finally, we talked about uh, what that means for you and I and other people who might be also concerned about climate change and wanting to play a role to help. Took us a couple of false starts, but we finally ended up with what I think was a pretty good episode. So without further ado, here's Dan. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Jason. You know, I have to tell you, Dan, I ran a venture-backed company over a number of years. We had a near-death experience. We had to cut a third of the team. We finally got back to our scrappy roots, and then we ultimately were acquired. That almost killed me, but it wasn't nearly as stressful as trying to get this episode recorded with you. (laughs) (laughs) It warms me to hear that I'm continuing to help you push yourself to new heights, Jason. But in all seriousness, I'm very excited to have you on the show. I've been long an admirer, and I'm grateful that you made the time to speak with me a few months back. And I've found your insight super helpful as I've been trying to make the transition into the climate fight. And I think you've got a great story to tell that can be quite beneficial to anybody who's looking to go through a, a similar transition. So I'm very glad you're here. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun getting to know you better over the last few months, and I'm really glad that you reached out when you did. And I feel like I've benefited a lot as well. So happy to be here, excited to talk about the climate and and my experiences. Well, why don't we jump into it? I mean, Opower, I'm sure a bunch of people know from the distance, one of the biggest energy software outcomes, I think, in history. But it'd be fascinating just to learn more about how Opower came about. What inspired you to start the company? I'd started a software company before. A friend of mine and I, right after college, about a year after college, had decided to start a business. We'd started an educational software company, and it was really valuable. And it was meaningful to me to start a business that had a mission as well as a good financial idea. It's just so all-consuming to run a company that I felt if I was going to orient my life in that way, where almost everything I was doing was for the business, that I needed to care about it more than just making money. That's how I'm wired. After I sold that company in my mid-20s, I took off about a year 
and traveled with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. So it was by any measure an excellent trip. And we drove the whole Pan American Highway. And we we bought a used Toyota 4Runner, shipped it up to Alaska and drove from the Arctic Sea down to Tierra del Fuego. We had a great time and there was no mission, so to speak, on that trip. We just wanted to have an adventure. But what it turned me into in the process was an environmentalist. We listened to Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, on iPod as we drove south. And we just witnessed, personally, the amount of degradation everywhere. I think I left on that trip with a mental model that the U.S. was degraded and other countries were still wild and untouched. And for the most part, it's actually the opposite. U.S. and Canada are some of the most untouched and pristine landscapes still left on the planet. And everywhere else has been even further degraded. And, and I came back really galvanized to do something. And when we moved back to the U.S., started looking around and... I started to search initially very, very broadly in a similar way to the kind of, I think, the questions that you've been asking and that you'll continue to ask on this podcast. For me, part of that search was actually a moral search to convince myself that I could move away from education and you know, essentially helping the impoverished youth globally and in the U.S. to have better opportunity to the environment. As you read a bunch of environmental ethics books, the topic of which is beyond the scope of this hour. But I did, in fact, it was it was important to me, and it helped me get certainty and confidence that this was the direction I wanted to dedicate myself in. And then I made two important narrowing decisions. One was I realized you, a lot of things you work on about the environment, but if you're in the U.S., the thing we do really poorly is is emissions. So I decided to focus on that. And if you worry about things like habitat protection and other really equally important problems, you really should do it in other countries first and foremost, because that's where the biggest battles are fought. I was potentially ready to move. My wife wasn't, and that was the, that was that. Secondly, and this is, a, I think, a general rule also for folks thinking about making a move towards climate-related issues, is I realized that the best thing for me to do was to not throw away the last almost 10 years of work building fast-growth software startups, but instead to try and stand on it. So I, I decided to look within where I'd already amassed skills and, and a reputation and say, what can I do using those capabilities? And then there was some just good luck. I had this idea out of the blue. It wasn't, didn't seem like a business idea. It didn't even seem like that great of an idea. But I was living in San Francisco at the time. I was a PG&E customer. And PG&E had, I, this way I had the good fortune that PG&E at the time had one of the worst utility bills in the world in, in history. They had an antiquated system that couldn't actually bill you across months. And since your meter wasn't always read on the first of the month, if you if the bill went across months, you actually got two half bills and you had to add it up yourself. It was staggering. It looked like it came off of a 1980s dot matrix printer. And I'm looking at this thing in between reading my environmental ethics books. And I'm thinking, what a huge missed opportunity. You, know, you do the easy math of 100 million homes in the US and there's like over a billion of these bills going out a year. Uh, I was thinking this should be the marketing channel to help educate people about energy and, infra and energy efficiency. And it's like, I can't even figure out how much I owe, let alone learn why I, I use what I used. And I had this very simple, naive idea of, well, look, I don't know what a kilowatt hour is or a mega decatherm. Can you just tell me how my energy use compares to similar homes in the area? And I was mentioning this to another person working in the space. So there's actually the Hewlett Foundation at the time. And her eyes went wide and said, you can't believe this, but we actually just funded a behavioral scientist who did research on essentially exactly this and proved that it really gets people to reduce usage. So she went back to her office. She scanned the, this was like 2007. People are still like scanning and PDFing things around. She scanned the results in a PDF, emailed it to me. 
And this professor, Robert Cialdini, had literally just demonstrated in Southern California that if you show people their energy use compared to their neighbors, that on average, he was getting a 6% reduction in energy use across the summer in this small test. My co-founder and I at the time, we were exploring a bunch of ideas, but Alex Lasky, he and I ended up co-founding Opower together. Our eyes went wide. It's reading this data. And we, we had figured out that there was these funding streams coming from state regulations that were driving utilities to run efficiency programs. And they worked on this basic math of essentially a cost-effectiveness analysis. If you could do something that led to a certain amount of savings, you calculate the dollars you spent to do it divided by the savings and you'd get a cost per kilowatt hour. And if it was really cheap enough, then it would qualify for this this funding. And all of the other programs were basically subsidizing products. So like when you go buy an LED in Massachusetts today, an LED light bulb, it actually costs a lot more than what you pay because the state of Massachusetts runs a huge program that subsidizes those bulbs because they save a ton of energy and it makes sense. So we penciled this out and we thought, geez, if, if we could save even a percent instead of 6% by sending out communications to customers, this would be a cost-effective efficiency program, but it wouldn't be a product. You know, it wouldn't be an installed thing, or as the industry calls it, an installed measure. We didn't know what it would be named. There wasn't a name for it. So we went out to Arizona State where Professor Cialdini was, pitched him on the idea. He loved it because he wanted, he loved the idea of some young entrepreneurs trying to commercialize some of his research because that's the ultimate proof that he's on to something. He joined us as an advisor. We raised a round of funding and then we went out to sell some utilities and we really didn't even know if anybody, you know, that was the big biggest challenge for us were two, two questions was one, will any utility ever do this? Cause it was risky and different and weird and they don't really have a strong incentive to do anything that fits into any of those categories. Then two, will it actually work? Like Professor Giardini had done this test, but it was only 300 homes and it was three months and we needed this thing to last, go across 30,000 homes for three years. And my co-founder, Alex, who's the world's greatest and most lovable salesman and just an amazing momentum builder, within a few months had gotten us in a place with a utility which had some enterprising and pioneering folks at a, a utility in Sacramento they took the risk on us. They signed a first contract and we were off of the races and we ran the program and it worked over the lifetime of the program it was like a one year pilot. We got, I think, a 3% reduction in energy consumption. It was very cost effective and we were off to the races. That was when the company really started. Then we ramped up and we hired more people and then we were on a essentially like an eight year journey of convincing every utility across the country and every regulator that this new category of efficiency program, which over time became named a behavioral efficiency, was appropriate and credible and that it actually was long lasting. It should be a part of every energy efficiency portfolio that these states were demanding from their utilities. And then as the company grew and grew, we added on new products. We ended up taking it public in 2014. And then two years later, we got acquired by Oracle. Lest that last five sentences made it sound like it was just one smooth celebratory up and to the right. While we probably need to go into detail on this for this podcast, I can assure every listener that on the inside, it was everything you described your journey at Runkeeper to be. It was high stress. There were ups and downs and there was panic and there was moments of victory, but they were very brief in between moments, long stretches of uncertainty and everything in between. Thank you for that, Dan. A couple things that I want to dig into based on what you just went through. It'd be great to talk a little bit about energy efficiency and how that fits into the 
climate fight, how impactful it can be. And then secondarily, I'm really interested because energy efficiency, whether it's a little impactful or a lot impactful, it's a net good for the cause. But I'm curious just what mobilized the utilities to act since I, I have a feeling and call me a cynic that it, that it wasn't just out of the noble concern for climate. Energy efficiency is funny. It's like the least sung hero of the climate fight. So first of all, what is energy efficiency? Energy efficiency is just any project, product, process that allows you to deliver whatever business or use outcome you're looking for with less energy. So whether it's uh, like an LED light bulb or O-Power's behavioral efficiency program or even process and system optimizations at manufacturing plants, these things can all qualify as, as, as efficiency because at the end of the day, you get what you wanted. Nobody actually wants to use energy. It's kind of the, you know, the, a key basic insight. You, you want outcomes from the energy. You want light. You want motive force. You want an iPhone. You don't want it to consume energy. So efficiency is just anything that gets you what you want with less energy than what had been there before. And the fact is that if you look at what, like, you know, the, the association, the International Association of Scientists who published the plans on what, how we possibly might be able to, to avoid decreasing confidence, but some, some fraction of the climate catastrophe that we're facing, still the largest wedge is energy efficiency because it is sort of the other, if all of the resource or supply, the energy generation is one side of the equation, the entire other side of the equation is the demand and the consumption. And there just remains huge uncaptured opportunities to further drive down energy consumption through energy efficiency. So it doesn't get the attention it deserves, but it is actually, it's massive. And, and in fact, the way I ended up thinking down this path in the first place when we started OPAR was to look at these base, to ask some of these basic fundamental questions of where can I have the biggest impact? I downloaded this map of energy usage in the US from the Energy Information Agency, the EIA.gov. And it had this sort of awkward looking picture of all these flows coming in from the left and then consumption categories coming out on the right. And I realized that everyone I was talking to was only focused on technology on the left and no one was focused on the right. Nobody in Silicon Valley was thinking about efficiency or everybody was thinking about wind and solar and biofuels. That's actually how I got oriented first starting to think about things like energy information and, and helping people to save. It's massive and it's underattended. Before we get to the second part of that question in terms of what motivated the utilities, one thing that I'm wrestling with as it relates to this energy efficiency is, as it's been explained to me, with the caveat that I'm only a few months into this journey and I'm flat-footed, so I'm learning just like a lot of our listeners are, but the way it's been explained to me is we have this carbon budget. And the carbon that we put up into the atmosphere, it's there for hundreds of years, meaning that whatever we put up there now, or even what we've put up there over the last several decades even, it's going to be there essentially for as far as the eye can see. So when it comes to emitting less, I mean, 80% less, that sounds like a big number. And a lot of us would be high-fiving because we reduced 80% of emissions. But the fact is, we're still emitting 20%, which still increases the carbon that's in the atmosphere year over year and makes the problem worse. Worse. So really, we, we need to get to zero carbon energy sources, and we even need to go negative and pull a bunch out. And when you had talked about early on in the company, it being very validating to run a test and find that you reduced energy consumption by 6%, to me, that sounds small and inconsequential. So I'm, I'm just curious 
how you react to that and whether you think about it as I have or if there's an alternative perspective I should consider. I feel confident that we can't bet that there's going to be a single silver bullet that solves the problem. So I do think we should be working on some of the silver bullets. As much as it seems eternally 20 years away, I'm so happy there are some people doing fusion research with all their heart because it would be there'd be nothing better than a radioactive free eternal and endlessly available supply of energy that has no emissions. So like we should keep chasing that stuff. At the same time, we need to keep chasing lower risk approaches to getting where we need to get. And you know, I think the thing to think about is we already have a lot of ways to produce energy without any emissions. Let's just take, you know, solar and wind and large hydro. These are all good examples. The problem is that we don't have enough installed to meet all the demand. So if you reduce the demand, let's say we reduce the demand by 5%, that doesn't have to cut emissions by 5%. That has to cut 5% of the emitting resources. So if you end up, if you're in a place where you're at 50% renewable, I cut consumption by 5%, I can cut the, not the emittive remaining portion by 10%. And then as you get further down the path, if I reduce demand by 20% and I only have 40% of my stack still emitting, then I've actually eliminated half of my emittive stack problem. The demand generation is just, it should be eating away. Every time you cut a power plant's worth of consumption, it should be the most emittive, dirtiest plant that gets turned off. So that's like how to think about demand reduction. The problem is demand is actually going up right now. So people in the developed world, if they all had the same number of incandescent bulbs that we had 10, 15 years ago, we would be screwed. As they put in LEDs, like the lighting problem is actually about a tenth as big of a problem as it used to be. So it's a really big deal that we have LEDs. And, and the fact that energy efficiency programs help to accelerate their market adoption is a really big deal. Specifically to O-Power, the way I think about it is, I'm of two minds, to be frank. I've had some learning in the process. So on the one hand, I can't feel anything but unequivocally really proud of what we did. As O-Power grew and it it runs today as a successful part of Oracle, we save every year the equivalent amount of energy that is functionally about the same amount of energy as the Hoover Dam puts out every year. The Hoover Dam is one of the largest public works projects of the 20th century in the U.S. And we've generated a Hoover Dam worth of energy, of zero emissions energy, without having to build the largest dam in America. And we've done it in a shorter time frame. That's awesome. Now, at the same time, any listener would agree that no one in the last year has said, well, you know, I was worried about the climate, but thanks to O-Power, it's not an issue anymore. We didn't fundamentally change the course of history. But I don't think anyone will. Any one group or person won't. This is a, we need millions of people working on this problem and in lots of different ways. So in that context, I can be proud that I've done my part and I'm still here to do more. I think that's the right mindset. So you've talked about kind of the mission-driven founding story and kind of that mission as the engine that, that enabled you to power through the ups and the downs along the way. And and you've also talked about impact and how to think about efficiency and demand reduction as 
part of that equation. And I think that makes sense what you said about how it's only one part and it's not a silver bullet, but it's, it's one thing we can do to help alleviate some of the pressure as we're continuing to attack the problem from, from other sides as well and kind of judo it. I guess the one thing that we didn't cover yet that I don't want to lose is just now let's come back around to our friends, the utilities, which were your core customer base, which many in the climate fight look at as rightly or wrongly as as the enemy of sorts, is that distinction justified? And what was it, do you think, that mobilized them, since I imagine it wasn't the same mission-driven purpose that you were describing for Opower? The utilities are not immoral. They are, like all profit-seeking enterprises, amoral. And I think that's something that we struggle with or fool ourselves sometimes about in capitalism. Like The capitalist construct does not reward morality. It rewards survival and growth. Evan, we should keep that quote right there. That, 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 yeah, keep, keep going. <laughs> that was a nice little soundbite. Thank you. And now that my now that my train is broken, we'll just go back to my normal plotting sentences. But I, I mean, sincerely, right? There's real sincere effort to try and change that with B Corps, and and I, I'm I'm of mixed opinion on that. And let's not spend time on whether or not the nuance of the B Corp and whether it works or not. But the problem is that the massive centerpiece of our society is capitalist and it's amoral. So the utilities are amoral. The mental model needs to not be like on our side or against us. It's incumbent and disruptor. Our mindset at Opower was, and it had to be because of the approach that we took, we were disruptive within the energy efficiency program ecosystem, but that ecosystem was managed and maintained by incumbents, the utilities. So we had to work with them and we did. And we came to actually really know and like many, not actually that it's so surprising, but over the course of my last 10 plus years in the industry, I've come to know and become friends with many people who work in uh, utilities across the country. And they're great people and they're hardworking and they're smart and they have a very hard job because they're not always loved. The CEO of the utility in the 50s was a star of the community. He, he brought light and heat and and radio, you know, and television to every home in, in the area. And that was a point of great pride. And now they've been demonized as these evil emitters. And they're doing the same thing they were doing in the 50s, right? And they're just fighting for their return on investment. So that's sort of how I think about utilities. The critical thing, of course, is, well, that's not sufficient for them to somehow get into this business of helping people use less of their core product. That's like very counterintuitive, doesn't really make any sense at all. And the answer there simply is regulation. So there's some very smart environmentalists in the 80s in California started a project to pitch what they called a megawatt, which was to say that the least emittive watt consumed is the one that isn't that you never do consume. And so let's stop only focusing on renewables and try and focus on essentially energy avoidance before it became energy efficiency. It's like the Jimmy Carter wear your sweater. Yes, precisely. So these laws were passed and that, that put a tax on the utility bill that funded efficiency programming in California. And then there's been a back and forth over the last 40 years as these things, you know, whether or not the utility should run the program or somebody else. And over time, it's all con everyone's converged that it's so entwined with the utility business and the utility is already so regulated that, in fact, the utility is the right place to, to locate the programs. But that has been, frankly, a policy decision, not a necessity. Consequently, what you have are these captive funds of hundreds of millions of dollars, and in California's case, billions per year that are spent to help drive efficiency in the states. And then the utilities have to spend that money, and they have to spend it exclusively on efficiency programs. So then what you're really doing is competing against the alternative efficiency programs like light bulb subsidies and air conditioner rebates and what have you. So that had to exist. 
that was the policy-led market we identified and targeted and went after as Opower, and we wouldn't have been able to pursue the business model that we pursued without it. And that would be, as a board of caution to any listener, do not go with a green-friendly product selling to utilities unless there's some regulated funding stream that's going to pay for it because they're self-interested, not green-interested. That said, increasingly, those two things are becoming one and the same because the regulators, especially in coastal states or progressive states, are so primarily focused on emissions because they don't have like huge capacity or infrastructure problems that the carbon footprint or carbon, you know, the emissions profile of the state is becoming the dominant, in most cases, it's become the dominant issue. And so every negotiation the utility goes through with their regulator is, is going to involve emissions at some level. Hearing this, that leads me to a couple of follow-up questions, or really it's the same question through two different lenses, which is if you were going to start another clean energy software company today, since we just discussed how financials and mission are distinct things that sometimes overlap on the Venn diagram and sometimes do not, if you were looking purely with a financial lens, is it better suited to be an enabler of the incumbent or a disruptor? And then I would ask you that same question with a mission hat on. I have seen a lot of interesting enabling technologies and disruptive technologies. And the analogy I think of is it's kind of like somebody asking, is it better to be an enterprise software or consumer software? It's like, well, on the one hand, the four largest tech companies are mostly consumer. So maybe that's the right answer. But there's some pretty darn big enterprise software companies too. So it's hard to say that you can only make money on the consumer side. And even some of the most consumer companies like Amazon are actually making almost all of their profit from the one enterprise side of their business, which is AWS. It's very equivalent here. If you're building large-scale power generation, your customer is eventually going to be the utility or you know, a merchant generator. At the same time, it's hard to look at Tesla and not say that disruption isn't a great way to go. So I almost feel like to me, and this is something that I've come to think is actually the right answer in a lot of these in a lot of these domains. The question turns to what do you like? What's your personality trait? Do you like to be an insurgent who breaks out from the pack and has total control of their own destiny and kind of lone wolfs it a la Steve Jobs? Or are you someone who is more of a networking collaborator who likes to be an enabler, to use the exact word, and enjoys working with other people in an industry to help pull on one oar on a very large ship? And it's kind of like personality traits that drive you to the kind of products and solutions that you enjoy building. So what if what I like is keeping the planet sustainable for humans and other life forms for as long as we can in as healthy a way as we can for life as we know it? Do we work to enable the incumbents to adapt or do we burn them down? There's no world I see where we burn down all the incumbents as the fastest way forward. And I think like what's been the most rapidly adopted renewable energy methodology in the last 40 years it's wind and all of the wind that's going in and it was sort of funny like you know 90 percent of the wind that will go in and i'm just making up that number because i'm confident that it's at least that high 
is going in from big incumbents because they're the ones that have access to very low cost capital and can bankroll billions of dollars of infrastructure build. Now, how many of the utilities invented new, more refined wind turbine designs? Zero. How much of the wind turbine, it really advanced wind turbine design even came from big industrial incumbents like GE? I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure the minority of it came from them too. I'm sure they were scooping up startups left, right, and center. But the fact is that the big guys who build most of the wind, both turbines and then actually buy and install them, those are all incumbents that have been around forever. I think it's hard sometimes, folks, to realize how big the energy industry is. The utility industry alone is a $2 trillion global industry. If you think about the things we've done in modern living, energy and electricity generation is easily in the top 5, 10 list of global historical accomplishments. And commensurate with that, it's a huge share of wallet and of of essentially what we do on this earth. Writing that whole group off is like a fool's errand. You can see already how the tipping point has started to happen. You look at political alignment around things like extending the investment tax credit for wind and solar. A lot of the wind resources are in very red states like Texas. And Texas is very, very supportive of extending that tax credit now, which is a subsidy for renewables. And at the state level, the government is not doing those kinds of things, but they are very eager for the federal government to continue to subsidize wind because now they're the incumbent. You have to get to that point to have political will to move these things. This battle is a battle of both political will and technology. And to me, technology, it's hand in hand. Political will helps to create subsidies and political policy actions that encourage technology development and the technology development makes it cheaper to change your mind politically, and those things are a positive cycle, and you need both. And it's the exact same thing with incumbents and disruptors. It reminds me also of, I mean, there, there's like a chicken and egg on the consumer side too, because it's like, does consumer behavior change matter? Well, maybe consumer behavior change, if you just look at the data in a vacuum, it's not going to move the needle that impactfully, and, and the impactful stuff is going to come from, as you said, things like top-down regulation, but how do you get the right policies in place? Well, you get the right elected officials in office. How do you get the right elected officials in office? You get them voted in. How do you get them voted in? The consumers have to give a crap, right? Yeah. So how do you get them to give a crap? Well, you first awaken them. How do you awaken them? Well, you start getting them to pay attention at a small scale, right? And so so it all comes back around. And to be honest, I'm still going through that tug of war because I only want to work on impactful stuff, but it's like you also have to walk before you run. And those are difficult trade-offs to kind of sort your way through, I'm finding. It's a very important topology to assess of what's important and what isn't. But unfortunately, that topology doesn't fall into these sort of more shallow, neat categories of like disrupt or enable and tech or policy, because there are really important things in all four of those categories and quadrants. It's within each of them that you are like, well, that disruptive technology idea doesn't have legs for all these very particular nuanced reasons. And, and this particular incumbent influencing policy also doesn't have legs for these other totally different reasons. So don't waste your time on these two. But then here are two interesting disruptive technology and incumbent political ideas that are both super important. You should work on either of them. That's the challenge. You can't sort of summarize it in a, well, 
I'm hopefully taking you another inch forward, but you need many more episodes, which it sounds like you have coming to get to the final answer. Well, if you, it, Dan, if, if you give me an inch, then, I mean, of course I'll take a mile. <laughs> Switching gears for a minute, you talked about how basically it's like we need it all and we need more. And it's about each person kind of sorting through. And, and then within each area, it can be an impactful area, but that doesn't mean that offhand, everything in that area will be impactful. And there's select things in each area that could be impactful. So it's less about the area and more about the specific thing within that area, and that each person needs to find their own strengths and and marry those two. So here's a different question. If you had $100 billion, right, you know, dollars don't have skill sets, right? And so dollars don't have passions, like those dollars can be allocated anywhere that you want. If you could allocate that either to one thing or across a portfolio of things to have the biggest impact on helping achieve the deep decarbonization that we desperately need, where does it go? I mean, that's a very deep question to ask, <laughs> not to flatter you in the sense of saying you're deep, but to say like the answer to that is a deep project. No, no, I heard that I'm, <laughs> I'm deep. You can take that. And, th- and thank take you for that, that compliment. Take that away too. I don't know that I have a global answer for this. It's funny because the question where my mind starts to immediately go is like, okay, $100 billion, what exactly, what category of activities does that give me? Because that money, you know, it's a pride, like, is $100 billion enough to successfully effectuate the policy change of a cap-and-trade system in the U.S.? I bet it isn't. Is a trillion dollars enough? Probably. If we had a trillion dollars, we could probably overnight pour in enough subsidies into the right domains, right political states, Senate offices, and congressional offices, and get you know cap-and-trade enacted. There's some number that's in that range that would make that happen. And I think that would be worth thinking about because cap and trade then facilitates our carbon tax to say it more plainly. Carbon tax is an invisible hand that then realigns the capitalist markets to pursue carbon reductive actions everywhere you look. And I think that would be very powerful. If I poured a you know a hundred billion dollars or a trillion dollars further into R and D, I don't know. There's some number. Some money should go into R and D. For sure. I don't know how quickly we could absorb that money effectively, but there's some ramp that I would love to see where we poured 30% more a year over the next 10 years and then grew up really robust and, and, and attracted the best talent globally to work on these problems. That's definitely another dimension I would be very interested in. I wouldn't put it into venture capital because we're flush with it, not because it's not important. We have enough. The other area that people talk a lot about is that there's this tweener problem with clean tech that it's hard to get traditional VC, but you're not yet able to access more lower risk funding sources. I don't have a strong enough sense of exactly how much money is needed for that and how real that is, but I suspect that there is something there and that would be another area I would look. Reflecting on what you just described, I mean, I think what I've heard from you over the course of of this discussion is that on the one hand, and actually from our discussions over the last few months as well, I mean, when you talk about yourself, I I know I've heard you mention that you like to kind of get in when there's not a lot of science risk and you can really kind of swing a big bat with deployment. So that's how you think about kind of where your skill set is most impactful. At the same time, though, I think what I heard from you with this $100 billion question is that the policy side is really a big lever. And so selfishly, one question I have for you that I'm really interested in your answer on because I'm wrestling with it a lot is that 
you've got a skill set that is more on the innovation side where things are ready to rapidly scale, but you also have some flexibility in terms of how you spend your time and you're deeply concerned about planet and the regulatory side seems like it's going to move the needle more than anything else. So how do you reconcile those two things? I've struggled with this a lot. And what I've ultimately come back to is this totally banal bromide of follow your passion. And I think it kind of said it earlier, and I want to say it again and call out how like hackneyed and overstated that phrase is. I keep coming back to it because it actually is what I keep finding governs me. And to be specific here, I don't get jazzed working on regulatory stuff. I'm in fact working on some regulatory stuff with the company Dandelion Geothermal that I'm very, very involved with right now. And it's fun as a sidelight, but it's not how my mind works. Regulatory and policy stuff is the province of folks who are incredible at remembering all these different connections between people in a network and recalling who knows who and how and what their motivations are and having this kind of like superpower of mirror neuron capability where you're really the sort of theory of the mind capacity to map out everybody else's mind. And I honestly, I'm just not that good at that. It's enervating for me. On the other hand, like I read a book with 10, 15 names and their roles, and you ask me a minute later what the names were. I, I honestly, I never even processed it. At this, in the same book, it has like a system diagram of how like a nuclear power plant operates, albeit a simple one. And I'll be able to describe to you a day later the difference between a boiling water reactor and a pressurized water reactor. Wait, we might have to found a company together because I swear I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> This is profound stuff for people. Even if regulatory is the most important thing, I can't be the guy waving the flag at the front. I'm just not good at it. And I'm really, in some other areas, exceptional at stuff that has to do with planning and systematization and and prioritization and diagnosis of problems. And, And a lot of the stuff that shows up in an early stage venture where it's as much about that stuff as it is about relationships. There's other things. I happen to be a good recruiter, which is essential to starting a company. So I have a couple other skill sets that particularly drive me towards early stage companies, not just systematic thinking. And I think I can be persuasive one on one, but in this sort of, but I'm, but I'm bad at the body politic and it showed up. Charming. You tell, you tell the jokes. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally. Again. Certainly receptive to flattery for what that gets me. But, you know, I'm not alone on this. And I, you know, I'd, I'd actually put up two people who we all look at as titans of, of industry, period as a good examples of how we weave these larger than life narratives, but there's always these surprisingly convenient self-interest narratives that seem just as explanatory to the reality. The two people I'd put up are Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. So Jeff Bezos just did this big TED Talk style announce basically of their lunar lander and revealed that they're going to the moon and that's the whole point of Blue Origin. Um, Did you happen to watch his hour long speech? I didn't watch the speech, although I read an article talking about Blue Origin and how everything he's doing at Amazon is essentially the cash cow to fund Blue Origin. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. I mean, that's sort of from his, he's selling a billion dollars a stock a year to fund it. So in that sense, yes. But I mean, you know, they're obviously totally separate entities and he's as rich as he is. He can do whatever he wants with a billion bucks a year. Which is still not policy stuff, So here's what's interesting, right? So he went through this whole, what I felt like tortured and ultimately not that credible argument of how his straw man that he was fighting against was why aren't you spending a billion dollars a year on climate change or poverty or refugee problems? Like there's so many other things you're spending this money to go to the moon. Like what, why are we doing this? And he made this elaborate case of how if we don't leave the earth, we will eventually run out of resources and that will lead to stasis 
and rationing. And, and we are, as a species, we are driven by growth and dynamism, and this is a necessary path. And he wants to be part of the solution to pave this sort of century or millennial long path into the interstellar great beyond for the future of humankind. He wants to go ruin the next planet after we already finished well, ruining this so, one. So it, yeah, I mean, there's every argument to be made that no planets that we've ever seen are even a quadrillionth as complex as ours. So like, that's not really an issue. But yeah, he wants to go mine the moon instead of mine Australia, which I actually think it's, it would be terrific. But what, oh, actually, let me not move on. Let me just say, give my, my, my conclusion here, and then I'll just repeat it very quickly with Elon Musk. That sounds really noble, and it's like kind of elaborate, Tale. But there was another thing he did, which is he showed an article of when he was 18 or 16, interviewed in his like high school town and it's in his, you know, his, the, the town he grew up in, in that that local paper, talking about at 16 years old that he wanted to go to the moon, basically he wanted to be part of the, 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 you know, the effort to, to build an interstellar future. So one narrative is he has really thought super deeply about the future of mankind, and he's analyzed that there's a lot of money and attention on climate change and a lot of money and attention on poverty and not enough relatively allocated to space exploration. And so he's putting his money where the most optimal spot is for the future of humanity. There's another narrative. And by the way, so if you take a moment back, like how could you possibly incidentally do some sort of rational, non-subjective calculus to come to the conclusion as to exactly how much should be allocated in either domain? Uh, it's, I, I wouldn't know where to start, but let's assume that's even possible. There's an alternative analysis, which is he's a space nerd. He's always been a space nerd. It gets him up in the morning. He couldn't be more excited about it. And it's his money. And he's going to build a freaking you know, spaceship to the moon if he can afford it because it's nothing's cooler for him on Earth and he's going to work day and night to do it and he's going to be incredible at it and it's going to happen. I'm pretty damn sure that the real story is the second story. And then you look at Elon Musk and it's a similar thing. He has this 10-year, 20-year vision, which incidentally is a brilliant vision for how to build a successful electric vehicle company. It's going to have a big impact on emissions. In Elon Musk's case, I honestly believe he is sincerely committed to the environment. But how did he pick to do electric vehicles? It, is it a coincidence that the other things he's doing is building a spaceship and building uh, and digging and trying to dig massive tunnels through the earth? No, the guy loves physical infrastructure. He dreamed up a hyperloop, yet another way to rapidly commute from one place to another. This is what his mind races on at night. I'm so thankful that he has dedicated his time to Tesla and is having a huge impact on the future of emissions and transport. But he's the right guy for that because he just freaking loves doing things like building spaceships and cars. To me, it's two stories, right? It's like it's one story is amazing effort, dedicating yourself to a mission bigger than you and, and putting it all in and getting it done. And the other one is picking a way to do it that is easy for you to be passionate about because you want nothing more than to think about it anyway. And there's no difference between fun and work for you because it's actually where your passions are aligned. And that I think if I'm going to leave like one message to like this sort of strategic question of where you should be signing yourself in this climate fight, that's the message. Find a way that you get motivated and can work day and night and know that you're being effective. And for me, like the analogous version here, 
is I can't do projects that have like a 10 year lead time before I know if they work. I need to see like immediate results in the here and now. And that was the case with Opower. We had a, a mission, an internal mission statement to save energy now. We were like not trying to convince people to build some power plant in 10 years. We were sending out these communications that got saved energy tomorrow morning that resonated with who I was and how we thought about things. And also the companies that I'm getting involved with today, the one I'm most deeply involved with, as I mentioned, is Dandelion Geothermal. It has an absolutely enormous potential. It could be a $50 billion company. It could be the future of how we heat our homes and cool our homes. But we're also selling and installing today. And we're saving energy every day. And that was really important to me because it's not something I have to dedicate five years and wonder, is it going to get anywhere? We're already getting somewhere. So that's something I know about me. So I know I'm not cut out for like deep academic research. And then I also, for the reason I described before, know that I'm not cut out for policy and politics. So thank God I am cut out (laughs) for early stage startup stuff because there's kind of nothing left. I also can tell you I'm I'm terrible at having a boss. I wasn't good in corporate America either. So, you know, my my, my options winnowed pretty quickly. And I frankly was just lucky to find out that the, the startup thing worked for me. Well, I mean, you could always be a a podcast host if the startup thing doesn't work out going forward. (laughs) Well, my last question was going to be, what advice do you have for any listeners that are feeling like you and I are, where we've got this climate crisis hanging over our heads and not sure where to start or how to go about it? But to be honest, I feel like you just already nailed it. Thanks. Yeah, that is my advice. I guess I would add, we don't have enough people doing it. So it's not a question that the people are doing the wrong things. It's just that we need more. There's important work to be done everywhere that I look. So Dandelion Geothermal does electric only, very efficient method to heat and cool homes. We need electric heat because we need to move away from the combustion heater, just like we're moving away from the combustion engine in the car. Okay, that's one of a thousand things we need to do, though. We need different forms of energy generation. There's a coming wave of new nuclear technologies and more growing passion to review like the decisions of 60 years ago to walk away from nuclear. We need people looking at that. And if they're believers championing it, we need more people working in energy efficiency. We need people working in policy and politics working for these issues. And we need people getting out the vote, um, following a guy who runs a project called the Environmental Voter Project. And one of the things he's discovered- It's going to be a guest actually, actually, Nathaniel. Really? Yeah. Great. And he's just, as you know, he's discovered that there are tons of environmental voters. They don't vote at the same frequency as the rest of us do, or maybe the rest of your listeners don't vote for that exact reason. So we should be, you know, say to everyone here listening to this, please go and make sure you vote in the next election. There's so many different things to do. To me, it's much less a question of what one thing should I do and more, which one of the things am I most aligned with doing? Awesome. Well, I thought this was great. You know, it took us a a false start or two and some technical issues, but I'm glad we stuck it out because you've been a a really terrific guest. (laughs) Thanks. And uh, we've demonstrated that even in the nearing the end of the second decade of the 21st century, it's still actually hard to to have a IP based, highly reliable phone communication. So, you know, we've also that's another thing that we've accomplished. Yeah. Well, next time, lesson learned, we'll just jump on an, an emissions producing airplane, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Dan Yates, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason. It was a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.com. 
.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.